Good day. My name is Franz Fulyun. I'm from the University of Pretoria, the director of the Center for Human Rights at that university. And we focus and um, advance the uh, cause of human rights education in Africa. And the theme of my lecture is in the domain of human rights in Africa, and specifically the African Court on Human and People's Rights. This is the um, one and only judicial institution of the African Union, the AU. It has its seat in Arusha, Tanzania, and it consists of 11 judges. Given the relative youth of this institution and the fact that its jurisprudence and its procedures are relatively undeveloped, the African Court is inevitably um, a topic that leads to speculation. Um, and therefore, my remarks here should be viewed in the light of and be supplemented by subsequent developments about the life of the court. But let me start at the evolution of this court. It obviously wasn't there from the beginning. In 1963, when the Organization of African Unity was founded, the idea of a human rights system, let alone a court, was not very much on the forefront of the agenda. In the context of emphasis on self-determination and non-interference in the domestic affairs of states, there was little room for discussion about a supranational court, particularly one dealing with human rights. It was only in 1981 that the OAU adopted the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. Although the possibility of a court was raised during the um, drafting of the African Charter, the idea was rejected in favor of a quasi-judicial institution, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. The African Commission has a mandate that pertains to the promotion and protection of human rights. So it deals, for example, with the examination of state reports as part of its promotional function. And then, in terms of its protective mandate, it considers individual and also interstate communications. It was really only in the early 1990s, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, that a window of opportunity opened that allowed civil society and the Commission itself to start putting the idea of an African court firmly on the agenda again. This process culminated in the adoption of the protocol to the African Charter, establishing an African Court on Human and People's Rights in 1998. Given the context of the transition of the OAU into the AU from 1998 onwards, there was an impetus, I think, also on states to <clears throat> ratify this new protocol, causing it to enter into force in a relatively short period of time, in 2004, in fact, when the required 15 ratifications had been accomplished. After some administrative problems, the first 11 judges were elected in 2006, and the court has been functional since then. Unfortunately, up to date, October 2012, the court has not yet issued a judgment on the merits. In the um, few cases that it had dealt with, it merely looked at issues of jurisdiction, 
in principle and in one relatively um, significant case the court also issued an order for provisional measures in respect of Libya in um, 2011. It has by now heard one case on the merits, a case involving the right of an independent candidate, in other words someone not belonging to a political party to run for elected office in Tanzania. So why then has the court been established? In terms of the rationale of the court, the answer lies in the protocol which states very clearly that the court has been established to complement the protective mandate of the Commission. So let's be very sure, the Commission will um, continue to exist in the form that it did and its promotional mandate. Everything that it does in terms of state reporting and in terms of adoption of resolutions, its special mechanisms, that aspect of its mandate is left intact. As far as its protective mandate is concerned, the court is then set up to, if you would, complement or correct some of the weaknesses that have been experienced in relation to the, court, uh, the Commission's protective mandate over the years. First and foremost, the major weakness that the Commission's findings um, reveal is that they are non-binding. So it does mean that states may, from a formal point of international law, argue that they are not bound under international law to follow or implement the findings. By contrast, the decisions of the court are unequivocally binding. But merely saying that the decisions of the court are binding, I think, does not mean that there will be necessarily a greater impact of these decisions. It is also important to note the dist distinction between the uh, procedures related to the Commission as opposed to the court. The Commission's findings were arrived at in a private session behind closed doors and the findings of the Commission remained confidential until such time as they were their publication was authorized by the AU Assembly, previously the OAU Assembly of Heads of States. This is obviously very different when it comes to the court. The court will sit in open public and the assumption being then that there will be much greater visibility, much greater interest from the media and there will be a sense of immediate exposure of the activities, the hearings of the court leading to much greater awareness and probably, hopefully, raising the stakes as far as domestic application or implementation by the states are concerned. We should also note that the Commission never had an explicit mandate to issue remedies and that led to a very ad hoc and inconsistent practice in terms of remedial recommendations or orders by the Commission. This is different obviously with the Court which has a very clear basis and is expected to give very detailed and specific um, uh, recommendations or orders that would be binding on states. And lastly, there is um, a very detailed institutional mechanism for implementation or enforcement in terms of the court's judgments, which was totally absent when, the, when we look at the Commission's findings. In terms of the court protocol, the judgments of the courts have to be um, overseen in terms of the enforcement by the Executive Council 
and they act on behalf of the Assembly of Heads of States. As to the jurisdiction then of the court, in the first place, the personal jurisdiction of the court. The cases before the court may be brought against state parties to the protocol, as in any other judicial institution. At the moment, there are 26 such state parties. That means um, just less than half the AU member states have accepted the um, jurisdiction of the court in principle. But who may bring cases to the court? Here we have to distinguish between the court being accessed in terms of personal jurisdiction directly and indirectly. What we find in the African court is essentially a hybrid system, a system that resembles in some respects the inter-American human rights system and in others the European system. The African system is similar to the inter-American system in that it allows indirect access to the African court. In respect of all 26 state parties to the protocol, an individual or NGO still first has to uh, bring a case, submit a case to the African Commission once it has exhausted uh, local remedies. Once the Commission then decides the case, it is up to the Commission to refer that case further to the African Court. And that would be then the indirect access route um, resembling the inter-American system. On the other hand, there is a system of direct access by individuals or NGOs to the court. And that system is allowed only in respect of states that have made a very particular declaration within the protocol. And that is a so-called Article 34.6 declaration. In other words, in those cases, there is no need to first approach the Commission, but individuals, NGOs in particular, are allowed to um, approach the court directly while bypassing the Commission. The um, only um, impediment here is that an NGO that is allowed to do so must have observer status with the African Commission before it is allowed to approach the uh, court uh, directly. Up to the present, only five states have made such a declaration, however. These states, I think they, their name should be mentioned, they are the state where the protocol was adopted, which is Burkina Faso. In West Africa also, Mali and Ghana. And then in Southern East Africa, the country where the court is located, Tanzania and Malawi. As far as the material jurisdiction of the court is concerned, quite expectedly, the material jurisdiction is essentially related to the protocol and the African Charter. But surprisingly, the material jurisdiction extends much further than these two legal instruments. In fact, Article 3 of the protocol stipulates that the African Court may uh, interpret and apply any relevant human rights instrument ratified by the state concerned. That seems to suggest that the African Court would have jurisdiction not only over African human rights instruments, but also, for example, over the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And if we look at the first case, which has been heard on the merits, in fact, the allegations that served before the Court were exactly 
of such a nature. On the one hand, the complainants alleged that the African Charter had been violated, but on the other, they also alleged violations of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. As far as the territorial jurisdiction of the court is concerned, it seems that the events um, that would be the cause of action before the court would not only have to have taken place within the territory of the state concerned, there seems to be leeway within the wording of the African Charter and the Protocol, and even in the jurisprudence of the Commission we have seen that if, for example, a state is um, an occupying force in another state, that its um, obligations under the African system could extend to another country. And that should also uh, be in line with the developments under international law where a state is also responsible when it exercises public power within another state. As far as the temporal jurisdiction of the court is concerned, the court's jurisdiction would relate to events in respect of a state that had occurred after the protocol had been ratified by that state. However, as is generally understood under international law, if there is a continuous violation, one would expect that the jurisdictional scope of the court may be enlarged um, from that perspective. Let me then emphasize also that the court not only has contentious jurisdiction, to which my remarks now essentially related, but it also has advisory jurisdiction. Just like, in particular, the Inter-American Court had revealed and showed in its practice the uh, potential use of advisory opinions, it is expected that this avenue may also be explored, especially in cases where uh, a state could not otherwise have been brought uh, before the um, court and an issue of more general concern, a thematic issue of concern to Africa as a whole may be um, uh, brought before the court. In terms of its contentious jurisdiction, in other words, there is a very specific complementary relationship foreseen between the court and the commission. So, Part of what the near future will show is exactly how the Commission understands its relationship of complementarity with the Court. In terms of its rules of procedure, we could, in my understanding, distinguish between two forms of complementarity in respect of the um, objective which the Court will serve in respect of a referral by the Commission to the Court. On the one hand, the court could really play a confirmatory role or, if you like, a compelling role in respect of findings which the Commission had already made. So, for example, if the Commission decides a case on the merits and issues a recommendation, but the State does not comply with that recommendation, the Commission may then refer that matter to the court for its binding judgment. In terms of its rules, the Commission will allow 180 days, six months, to the State to provide it the opportunity of complying with its recommendation. If it does not, the Commission may refer the case to the Court. In other words, in these circumstances, the Court becomes the entity where enforcement, in a sense, 
of the finding of the Commission will uh, take place. Related to the possibility of the Commission finding on the merits and then referring the case is the possibility of the Commission finding provisional on provisional measures. The Commission, in terms of its rules, has the competence to find provisional measures and these are termed requests. Once the Commission has directed a request for provisional measures to a state, the state is given 15 days to comply. If the state does not, once again, the Commission is entitled to refer that matter to the court for its binding decision. Up to now, the Commission has in fact referred at least one case on the basis uh, of a provisional measure not being complied with by the state to the court. That decision is being awaited. On the other hand, the role of the court in terms of referral by the Commission could be more of a substitutory or a role of substituting the Commission's finding. That is quite an innovation and um, uh, perhaps a very progressive avenue to be explored. In this respect, the Commission is entitled in its rules to refer a matter to the court at any stage of the examination of that complaint. That would suggest, I argue, that the Commission may refer a case to the court without having dealt with either the admissibility or the merits of that case. Under what circumstances should the Commission do so? In my view, one of the main factors to be taken into account in such a referral would be the need for an urgent binding decision. In other words, the Commission should relinquish, if you like, its jurisdiction in favour of that of the court if there is a clear need for a formally legally binding decision in a particular case. Related to this is also the Commission's competence to refer matters that reveal uh, massive or serious human rights violations. So when situations of massive or serious violations come to the attention of the Commission, it may once again not deal with the case but refer it instead to the court for the court to in fact deal with this matter. It is on the basis of the court as a kind of a substitute for the Commission's jurisdiction that the case against Libya had been referred to the court in 2011. That case revealed a series of massive human rights violations and seemed to be related to a complaint before the Commission. The Commission, without dealing with that communication, referred it to the court and the court of its own accord then adopted and issued an order for provisional measures against or in respect of Libya. As the court moves forward, as it hears increasingly uh, an increasing number of cases, I think there are a number of issues to look out for and areas of development that um, need our attention as we, we keep on analyzing the work of the court. And I would want to mention a few of these. First of all, there is the issue of the jurisdiction, the substantive jurisdiction of the court. As I pointed out, there is a possibility that the court may adjudicate on instruments that are not AU human rights instruments, for example, the ICCPR. In doing so, however, the court should be aware of the possibility of conflicting jurisprudential stances that could emanate 
from such an exercise. Take, for example, the right to privacy um, that the court may have to decide on because that right is provided for in the ICCPR and not in the African Charter. This could create a very real possibility of the African court taking a position on a particular right in the ICCPR, which, for example, is not in the African Charter, and in its finding, potentially, the court may contradict or arrive at a conclusion different to the Human Rights Committee. My view is that the court should, as far as possible, locate its findings within provisions of African Union human rights instruments and, if needs be, adopt those instruments expansively, widely, in order to accommodate the concerns raised by litigants before it. The second emerging issue is that of um, the kind of evidence and procedure that the court will adopt. Will the court, for example, consider um, evidence de novo when matters are referred from the Commission to the court. As far as I see it, the court should, as far as possible, defer to the admissibility findings of the African Commission. One of the problems of the African human rights system thus far has been um, exceeding delays, as in many other human rights systems. And if one adds the indirect route of referral to the African court on top of the already protracted process, it could mean that approaching the court would just exacerbate the delays that are already inherent in the system. To obviate that obvious concern, the court should, I think, as far as possible, um, defer to the decisions in respect of admissibility as arrived at by the African Commission. As far as issues on the merits are concerned, the court obviously is free and should make its own finding, but once again, it should certainly see the Commission's um, initial finding, if there is such a finding, as uh, the fundamental starting point for its evidentiary um, process. A third issue is that of the interpretive stance or the interpretive approach which the court will adopt. The question remains whether the court will essentially follow to a great extent in the footsteps or follow the jurisprudence of the African Commission. Obviously the court is not bound to do so, but one would hope that the court would um, at least take a leaf from the uh, book of the Commission, as it were, in respect of its uh, progressive jurisprudence related to socio-economic rights and the right to development, to name but a few. There is also the issue of how and to what extent the court will be involved in the implementation or the enforcement of its own judgments. As events evolve and ex uh, perhaps postulating possible um, non-compliance by states, the question is whether the court will, similar to the Inter-American Court, take an activist stance and through the interpretation and through um, post judgment orders compel the state into compliance through judicial means. Although one understands that there are limits to this process and ultimately the enforcement of the court's decisions are a matter of politics, it is also true that the court has a role and as we've seen in the inter-American system, the court has played a very um, instructive role in ensuring or facilitating the process of 
um, actual enforcement of his judgments. The last issue that I would consider one of these emerging issues is that of the role of the individual before the, the court. In other words, what role does the individual or the NGO play in the proceedings before the court? At the moment, um, there is no specific role prescribed. The rules of the court are open-ended and seems to suggest that there could be uh, circumstances under which the individual is um, allowed to play a role. My view, once again, is that one should just, again, take um, uh, inspiration, draw inspiration from the inter-American system in which we see this almost inevitable evolution of uh, increasing participation and increasing role being allowed for the individual in the process before the court. Um, there are many arguments and I will not delve into all of them, but I think the court would do well to kind of leapfrog uh, into the future and by drawing lessons from the inter-American system, allow from the outset as, um, as um, far-reaching a role of the uh, to the individual as is possible under the circumstances. Let me then lastly uh, make some remarks in terms of the future of, of this court. Now, it seems very clear that the African court is there to stay, the African Court on Human Rights. However, it is also quite clear that it will undergo some form of transformation in the uh, near future. This transformation is occasioned by the fact that in the AU Constitutive Act, another court has been provided for, and that is the AU's Court of Justice, the African Court of Justice. So one assumes that the African Court of Justice would be a court that deals with essentially economic and political integration um, of the states within the AU. In a way, then, there is a postulation of two separate courts, an African Court of Justice and an African Court on Human and People's Rights, similar, let's say, to what is um, pertaining in Europe with the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. However, the Assembly has subsequently decided that these two courts should be merged into a single judicial institution. A legal instrument has been established to create this new court, and that court would be called the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. Essentially, one court with two separate chambers or sections, a human rights chamber and a general affairs chamber. It would mean that once this new protocol enters into force, the African Court on Human and People's Rights would cease to exist, but would actually be absorbed or integrated into this new entity. Pending cases and um, judicial appointments have all been um, regulated in terms of this protocol. What we then find is essentially an integrated court for logistical reasons mostly. For cost-saving purposes, the leaders of uh, the AU decided to integrate these two courts. In my view, that seems to be a wise step to take, whereas in Europe there may be a very clear institutional reason to have two separate courts. This is not the case in Africa. We don't have a separation between the European Union and the Council of Europe, which pertains um, in the European context. In Africa, we have one political umbrella organization, the African Union, and the two courts would have been separate judicial entities within the African Union 
within the African Union. To integrate them, I think, is a logical step and um, makes logical sense. However, that protocol is not yet in force. Uh, it requires 15 states to um, ratify it to ensure its entry into force, and that seems to be a process that may not um, happen in the very near foreseeable future. The matter is, to conclude, slightly more complicated. In uh, the recent past, the AU decided that um, a protocol should be put on the table that would create essentially a third chamber to this proposed court. So there is now a proposal for a three-chambered court, if you like. And the third chamber is a chamber that would relate to international criminal justice. In the context of African leaders having um, issues with the exercise of ju universal jurisdiction by European states, and um, in the context of uh, perceptions about African states being unfairly targeted or leaders being unfairly targeted by the International Criminal Court, um, the idea came about to create an African chamber of criminal jurisdiction. So if this new protocol, the three-chambered protocol, if you like, if that would come into force, we would see one court with three chambers, one dealing with human rights, one dealing with general affairs, and another dealing with international criminal justice. This proposal served before the AU Assembly um, mid-2012, but a decision was taken to investigate the costing of this new three-chambered court before proceeding on uh, finding about um, uh, its legal basis or adopting this protocol. In my view, the um, two issues should be kept separate. I think there is certainly a, a need for an African Court of Human Rights, African Court of Justice that is uncontrovertible and that is ongoing. Whatever the merits are or would be of an international criminal justice chamber, I think that should be a separate institution or should be considered as a possible separate institution within Africa. Why do I say so? Essentially, because I think the progress that has been made, the advances in terms of human rights, should not in any way be affected by the complexities or the controversies that may arise from the um, drafting of a final version and the adoption of a protocol that creates a court dealing with international criminal justice. In essence, it is very different to have a court that looks at state responsibility, as the African Court of Justice and Human Rights would do, compared to a court establishing individual guilt. These are two very separate entities, and it is quite unprecedented in international law to amalgamate these two kind of very disparate functions into one judicial entity. This, for me, is the main concern, apart from the pragmatic and um, concerns related to, co related to cost, um, that seems to suggest that the International Criminal Chamber, if it is created, would be much more costly, would require much greater budgetary investment compared to what has, up to now, been allocated to the African Court on Human and People's Rights and would be expected to be given to the Court um, as it would exist in the future. So for those reasons, I think we should delink whatever the process is in terms of establishing an international criminal court in whatever form in Africa from the process of strengthening, reinforcing and ensuring that the African court, as it exists at present,
is at least not um, uh, taken backwards in any sense um, or in form. Let us conclude by just looking perhaps at the lack of cases so far decided by the African court. Who is to blame, if anyone? I would think that in the first place we should look at the role of states. Only half the African states have thus far ratified the protocol. And, and that is a reason why perhaps few cases actually get to the court. Zimbabwe, Eritrea, states that are often found in violation of the African Charter, these states have not yet ratified the protocol. So obviously it's a constraining factor in terms of the cases that could be referred from the Commission to the court, for example. States have also, to a very limited extent, made declarations under Article 34.6, only the five states mentioned. Um, that obviously constrains the potential of individuals to reach out and approach the court directly. One could ask, if states are prepared to accept the obligations under the African Charter, if they are prepared to accept the jurisdiction of the court, albeit through the indirect approach to the Commission, what, why, on a principled basis, are they not prepared to accept the Article 34.6 um, route? It essentially, the essential difference is merely that the matter reaches the court quicker without the delays that may be occasioned through the Commission process. The second group of actors that we could look at would be um, the litigants, the NGOs, others bringing cases. To some extent, the lack of cases is also uh, attributable to the dearth of cases actually being brought by individuals or NGOs. In other words, the pool of cases before the Commission in respect of those states that have accepted the protocol, that pool is relatively small. There are, in fact, few cases relative to the other regional systems that are ever submitted to the African Commission. In respect of those five states that have accepted direct access, how many individuals, how many NGOs have, in fact, now approached the court, have made use of this possibility? There is some suggestion that this is increasingly being used but it certainly is as yet underexplored. Thirdly, there is the African Commission. The Commission clearly could have referred a few more cases to the court already. One of the constraining factors inhibiting the referral by the Commission to the court is, I think, the lack of a reliable system of monitoring compliance by states if non-compliance by states is a trigger that um, allows referral by the Commission to the court, then that aspect of the Commission's mandate seems to be very important. Up to now it's been neglected in my view, and perhaps one of the growth areas within the Commission would be um, this area of monitoring in a very reliable um, way the compliance by states with the recommendations of the Commission. Lastly. There is obviously also the broader civil society, the media, the academia, etc. I think it is through creating greater awareness, greater literacy, if you like, about um, judicial options and about the African system, about the African court, that eventually there will be a greater kind of a domestic momentum 
in terms of um, potential cases being brought to the African court. So my conclusion is, if we look at the court, it is a work in progress. It has not achieved great results in the relatively few years of its existence. But as we move into the future, we collectively should not sit back and expect the court to somehow deliver the impact that we desire, but it is up to all of us in the categories I mentioned to contribute towards the gradual and hopefully increasing impact of the African court on human and people's rights. Thank you.